Hello and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Upper Bowl GM podcast. My name is Nick Zararis and very special guest today, now a recurring guest, someone whose work I've enjoyed reading, whose patron I've long been subscribed to, puts together really good analytics work. He's a writer at EP Ringside, amongst other things. I have, of course, talking about J Fresh Hockey, one of the more interesting follows you can find on hockey Twitter if you're looking to get a deeper understanding of the game, which is basically where I'm at in my journey here as a content creator, journalist, whatever title you want to slap on what I've been doing here on the show for a while now. Jay Fresh was on back in November. He was on episode number 12 when we didn't know when hockey season was going to start. We One of the main things we talked about was the fact that Capococco had such an abysmally bad rookie season and what the Rangers could do to get good production out of him this year in year number two. And we're going to touch on Kako's growth and a lot of other things around the league. This is a nice snapshot point in the league. We're about three weeks away from the playoffs. Most of the divisions have already been decided in terms of who's going to make the playoffs. It's just a matter of the order the teams are going to finish in. And that's really where the battle is going to be in, in the East division, especially all three teams are well within the margin of error to finish one through four. Any of them could finish in first, any of them could finish in fourth, and it wouldn't surprise me one bit. So Jay Fresh or Jack is here to talk about that. But before I get to the episode with Jack, I do have to remind everyone to help grow the show. Got a little bit of feedback from the episode I published on Tuesday when Matt Albert did not put an episode up yesterday. Had something planned originally about the Super League, but the Super League kind of fell apart. So we're going to look more big picture soccer wise. I'm going to try and get something ironed out for next week to talk about the Super League and what it's failing means for soccer as a whole. But otherwise, since you're listening to this, you're somewhere where you can subscribe to this. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can hit that little subscribe button. You can go to our shows page. You scroll all the way down to the bottom. There's going to be five clear stars. Hit the one furthest to the right. Beneath that is a button and purple lettering that says write a review. If you have the extra minute, please, a review would be very nice. It's nice to see people are listening. If you're on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Audio Boom, any other podcasting platform, please throw a follow. Putting out a lot of good stuff here, trying to get a nice variety of guests, talk about a number of things. I mean, today was hockey. Yesterday was sports gambling. Last week, we had hockey. The week before, we've had Formula One. Going to try and get a NASCAR episode going soon with DeAndre Graves, who was on way back when at the end of last year's NASCAR season. And we're midway, not midway, we're about six, five, six races into the season. Talladega this weekend, very exciting. It's a good time to be a sports fan. Hockey-wise, we're getting to uh, nut up or shut up time. Uh, I will see you guys with Jay Fresh on the other side of the drop. Crosby trying to sneak one in and he scores. Sidney Crosby with the magic touch. Put it off the goaltender and in. And the Penguins lead 2 to nothing. Put it right off his head. Unbelievable. Sidney Crosby, a magician. And as promised, he is a writer for EP Ringside, which is a subscription-based service for in-depth hockey analysis. Highly recommended. Highly, highly recommended. He has his own patron, which again, yeah, I'm also subscribed to. I like hockey stats. I'm a nerd. How are we doing, Jay Fresh Hockey? 
I'm not doing too bad. How about you? Then you are here, of course, to talk about our wonderful National Hockey League, which is having one of the weirder seasons of recent memory. And we'll just jump right into it. How much do you think the fact that teams are only playing the same seven teams this year has skewed results we've seen so far? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the weirdest thing about the season to me is that it hasn't actually been that weird. Like, if you look at the prediction models, they're all doing way better this season than they usually do uh, mm-hmm. on a game basis because the better team is winning more often, uh, which, you know, and I think if you look at the playoff race right now, you know, with the exception of, I think, two of the divisions, they're pretty much sewed up, uh, which you definitely wouldn't see with 20% of the season left to go. So, you know, I, I think on, on one hand, you know, playing the same team so many times is definitely having a bit of a distorting effect. I think at the same time, it, it might also be, you know, separating the good teams from the bad teams a little bit more clearly, which uh, as somebody who takes a lot of claim on getting predictions right, I'm not minding too much. But <laughs> if I was on a team that was on the outside looking in, I might not feel so happy about it. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I That was a point um, Dmitry Filipovich made on his podcast a couple of weeks ago going into the trade deadline was that because there are no middle class of teams that are poised to make a run right now going into the trade deadline meeting. No one's really went crazy aside from teams who already felt they were pretty close. There was no middle class team that was like, you know, in a normal year, they'd be like four points out of a wild card spot at the trade deadline and they'd go all out. They would get a big name like when the Blue Jackets traded for Matthew Shane and traded for a bunch of other people and they were just outside. No one really did that this year. I mean, the big moves. Boston, firmly a contender in the East, Tampa, Toronto. I don't feel like we're going to get any shocks in the early part of the playoffs because of how things have shaken out this year. Again, this is hockey, very high variance, but that's just my assumption. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a, been a weirdly not weird season, but you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the playoffs will start to shake things up a bit more. I'm especially looking forward to that Canadian division. Yeah. Sure there's going to be a lot of wild matchups going on there. Uh, I, I'm praying, as I have been since I was seven years old, for a Toronto-Montreal series, <laughs> just because that would be absolute chaos. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's, it's in a period right now, I think things are in a little bit of a lull with the NHL, mm. uh, just because so many of these races are settled. You know, the, the fights are basically just proceeding right now, unless you're a Nashville or Dallas fan. So I, I think that, you know, everyone can kind of maybe even take just a little bit of a break from uh, from worrying too, too much about the minutia of hockey. And then everybody will be going completely wild when the playoffs start. Is there a defining style of hockey right now in the present tense? Because we've kind of seen the other three major sports in North America hit their maximum efficiency I guess you could call it where football you have to play in a spread offense and you have to be able to score about 30 points a game to win basketball you need to shoot threes consistently to win and in baseball you're only swinging for home runs and it doesn't matter you strike out do we have something resembling that higher plane of efficiency in hockey right now I don't think so and it's one of the things I like about hockey one of the reasons that I I feel a little better about being like an analytics guy in hockey than I would if I was you know, uh, following any other sport is that like, I feel like being an, a hockey analytics person doesn't mean like trying to game the sport in the same way that it does in those other leagues. Like mm-hmm. those other leagues, you're trying to solve basically the sport and maximize your efficiency and all, all that stuff like that. Whereas in hockey, the analytics 
there is a bit of that stuff on the on the edges uh but in, in large part you're just trying to find who the best players are and the best players might play wildly different styles from one another you know like in terms of the teams that are at the top of the league you know they really couldn't be playing more differently mm-hmm. uh, i've been writing quite a bit recently uh about you know the different styles that teams play based on different indicator stats I wrote one this week uh, talking about how teams use their defensemen to generate offense uh you know who's taking shots who's uh getting scoring chances uh who's you know which defensemen are being playing a larger role in transition play and if you look at kind of the spreads of how teams are ranked in terms of how much they use their defensemen you know there are contenders at the top and there are contenders at the bottom like Tampa Bay and Toronto for example two teams that are in similar standings positions right now uh the lightning use their defensemen in the offensive zone more than almost any team in the league when it comes to uh taking shots and generating scoring chances uh the leafs are the complete opposite i think the leafs defensemen account for something like you know 7% of their shots on goal in the offensive zone uh uh or i, I think that I, I think that might be 7% of their their expected goals in the offensive zone which is wildly different from what Tampa Bay does uh and the same thing goes for transition you know generally better teams seem to be using their defensemen more in transition but there are plenty of other teams on the other side of things that are uh that are letting their forwards drive the bus and it's working for them so i think there's a lot of room for fluidity and the key is to just make sure that you're getting players that optimize this type of style that you're playing one of the things going off of what you just said about why you like hockey so much i got into this discussion with one of my friends the other day cuz he was talking about how come defensemen always end up taking that slap shot that gets blocked and goes the other way for a breakaway? Why isn't that just kind of like when the center has the ball on the perimeter in basketball where he's not going to take the shot, he's going to get the ball to someone else so they can do something. And the way I kind of explained to him is, yeah, there's like structures and schemes within hockey, but a lot of this comes down to just who's open at the right time to rip a shot. There is no set play all of the time. They're playing off of what's available in front of them. Yeah, I mean there are definitely guys who shoot it too much like who yeah. who would that category. I mean, you know, in in my article I found that uh, the defenseman in the league who who shoots the highest percentage of his team's shots when he's on the ice is Logan Stanley, a rookie <laughs> for the Winnipeg Jets, yeah. who uh is taking uh, almost a third of the Jets shots when he's on the ice at 5 on 5, which is by far the most of anybody else. Uh and these shots are I think the second lowest quality on average of any defenseman in the league. So ultimately what he's doing is getting the puck as far away from the net as possible and just throwing them at the net. You know, that's not an efficient play. But at the same time, if you look at guys who take a lot of shots from the point, you're going to find Dougie Hamilton and Shea Theodore and Victor Hedman. And, you know, you're not looking at those guys and being like, oh, those guys are making any efficient plays. You know, sometimes a shot from the point was a really stupid decision. It goes into the shin pads. It turns into a breakaway the other way. It's one and done, you know, or sometimes a shot from the point generates a rebound. You know, a a team recovers it, continues to generate offense, and it turns into one of the possession sustaining plays. It depends on who's taking the shot. It depends on who they play for. Like you said, it depends on who's open. Uh, So, you know, I think that that ties into things pretty well. There's multiple ways to, to, generate offense uh some of them might be more efficient than others but there isn't really a skeleton key like you might be able to find in other leagues yeah no because um xbox put nhl on game pass so all of my friends have been playing club with me for the first time in a while and they're all kind of trying to learn a little bit of intricacies of hockey and i'm just trying to explain to them 
we want to get the puck to X certain spots and that kind of thing. But NHL is an entirely different thing from real hockey. That game does not resemble real hockey in the slightest. In terms of these contenders, what traits do you think are most important in making a contending hockey team today? Whether it's the type of players you have, the style of play, which you said there's some fluidity and some variance in terms of what you can do to be successful. But what do you feel are things that teams have to be able to do well today? I, I, I think that it really comes down to figuring out an identity and then getting the guys who can play that identity and who can do it well. You know, like quality of player really does matter. You know, the Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, like we said before, you know, they don't play what you might consider to be kind of, you know, if when you talk about like the modern game, you know, what you're thinking about is like the way that the Avalanche and the Leafs play. Yeah, that really kind of transition heavy. We're carrying all the pucks. We're making controlled entries and controlled exits and all that stuff. Uh, but the Lightning basically managed to win the Stanley Cup playing a very traditional dump and chase style game. Uh, but the reason that they were able to do that and succeed is because the guys who they acquired to play the dump and chase game were amazing at it. You know, they, they went and got Blake Coleman, they got Barkley Goodrow, they already had Anthony Sorelli and Yanni Gord. All these guys were great four-checkers, really suited to playing the style that they were playing, and, uh, and it worked out for them. You know, the Avalanche have decided to play that up-tempo transition game, and so they go and they acquire guys who play that style they they find Devon Taves and get him out of steel they you know they they bring in Valeri Nichishkin and let him do what he needs to do uh you know I, I think that really you know like we kind of alluded to you know there's certain things that you might say oh like I'd rather have a team that controls possession and isn't spamming point shots and isn't you know dumping pucks in and things like that but you know like we said as long as you have the right players to do it you can pretty much find success you know playing almost any style it really just comes down to making sure that your roster is well suited to it it's an interesting point you bring up because there were two separate columns that were written today about the way the rangers lost to the islanders last night and the main framing for both of those stories was that the rangers top six couldn't get anything going because they try playing a specific style and that specific style isn't conducive to beating better teams talking about the East-West, trying to get the puck across the net mouth to set up those one-timers, those breakaway chances where you have a three-on-two, that kind of situation. And I still feel like we're not getting the, we're not scratching the surface of what actually is the problem here. It's not that they're not creating chances. They're creating chances. They're not finishing them is the problem. And I think a lot of the discourse in hockey from, the legacy publications, people who've been around the game a long time, they don't cover the whole, the variance factor of hockey. I know you were banging the drum a lot going into the deadline that Taylor Hall is not this bad. He will be fine when he goes to a good team. And he's looked pretty good since he's arrived in Boston. Yeah, I, I think that the variance factor is, is so important to understand. And the, you know, like you said, sometimes the shots just don't go in. The, the New York Rangers are a strong team in terms of their scoring chance, uh, their scoring chance numbers uh, by, by the public models that we have. When you look at, at what the private models say, the Rangers actually come out even better, which, which would suggest that those, you know, those cross seam passes that you're alluding to are generating good scoring chances. You know, Mika Zibanejad, I think, had a pretty rotten start to the season when it came to shooting percentages. You know, obviously, he was a little unsustainable last season, but you know, I, I think that you can point to a lot of cases where players were not scoring up to what you would expect of them. 
uh, Capo Caco. The one thing that he could do last season was put the puck in the net. Uh, and that's been almost the one thing that he can't do this year. So, you know, I, I really think for the Rangers, this season just has to kind of be a, you know, look, things just didn't go our way. We'll just keep developing. We have the young pieces in place. Uh, you know, by, by any measure, the Rangers should be a playoff team this year, including actual goals. So <laughs> this is really it's just a situation where you just say, all right, this is a mulligan. This is an incredibly unlucky season. We'll just move on and, and you know, hey, we'll be better when there's actual fans in the stadium too. So it'll work out from a financial perspective as well. Yeah, no, the Rangers are a, a fascinating a fascinating case study in what happens when you end up with players you didn't expect to get in your rebuild. Uh, most rebuilds don't get to add an Artemi Panarin. You don't get to win win a lottery and get the second pick in a lottery. You don't get to have a number one defenseman force his way to your team in free agency as um, a college free agent. The Rangers have kind of lucked out, and it really seems like they're playing a painfully slow arc on their rebuild. I mean, they're still not playing Lafreniere on the power play like at all. Kako barely gets any power play time because the second power play unit doesn't play. And it's been a very weird year. They, like you mentioned, they came out of the gate playing pretty well expected goals wise. And they were out chancing the other team most nights. And Shesterkin was playing well up until he pulled his groin in late February, but they just couldn't score. For whatever reason, the pucks weren't going in the net. They were having bad luck. They lost a bunch of games, two to one, three to two. And they were in all of those games, but to circle back around, one of the things I have on this rundown is what makes Adam Fox so good from just an everything standpoint, because none of his game is, at least visually, none of his game is crazy. He's not an insanely fast skater. He doesn't have the most incredible vision, but he makes it work for himself. Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to IQ. Uh, you know, every every breakdown that I've read of Hughes or of uh, of Fox, sorry, I just finished writing about Hughes, so he's on the brain. Uh, about uh, Fox has has all revolved around his hockey IQ, uh, and and like you said, I think that those physical tools are not necessarily super visible, uh, which I think led to his you know his deflated uh, draft spot when he was picked uh, initially. Uh, and I think it's probably a reason that he got underrated last year. You know, I mean, like myself and, and other people in the SAS community were really banging the drum. You know, like he was my Calder pick last year. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I think he, he would have gotten a lot more attention if he hadn't started the season, you know, understandably on the third pair, you know, and, and work his way up. You know, now this season he's, he's you know, the, the number one defenseman clearly, and he's putting up pretty similar numbers as he did last year. Uh, and, and everybody's suddenly taking notice. So, you know, I, I really think that for Fox, it just comes down to, you know, his his numbers are so good at both ends of the ice, you know, and, and, and I think that speaks to a lot of things. You can dig into his underlying numbers or his microstats, and you can see that he's, you know, a great transition player. He's generating a lot of shot assists in the offensive zone. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, I think the, the fundamental skill that he has is hockey IQ that works really well for him at both ends. And it's, it's a rare skill and, and one that I don't think very many, if any other defenseman in the NHL has at his level right now. He's been leading the league in war for a lot of the season as a defenseman. If you had to explain war in a nutshell to an average person, because wins above replacement. So first, just real quick, what war is, and then who is 
the replacement level defenseman. So people have a frame of reference in their brain to this guy is this much better than average. Yeah. So, so wins of a replacement is basically an attempt to figure out or to estimate the value that a player provides to his team in, in one number. Uh, and, and that number is basically an abstract estimate of, you know, how many wins is this guy individually providing to his team uh, compared to a replacement level player, which, you know, I don't know if I necessarily have one on hand uh, mm-hmm. in, in my brain. I'm, I'm kind of blanking, but it basically just think like seventh defenseman, 13th forward, okay. like basically the guy that you put in the lineup uh, if somebody else gets hurt. Like he like replacement in that sense, you know, it's a, it's a term that comes from baseball, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so basically, you know, if you took Adam Fox out of the Rangers lineup and replaced him on the top pair with, you know, whoever their seventh defenseman is in the organization, you know, that is, you know, the difference in value would be his wins above replacement uh, in, in practical terms, like, like what is measuring uh, for, for defensemen specifically is their impact on scoring chances offensively. So, you know, when they're on the ice, like what's the impact they're having on their team generating scoring chances. Uh, Defensively, it's what's the impact they're having on their team uh, suppressing scoring chances against. Uh, So so Fox grades out really well at both sides of that. Uh, You also have, you know, how do they do on the power play, on the penalty kill, uh, as well as uh, in terms of penalties. You know, how how is a player contributing to you know, his team drawing penalties versus how is he, you know, individually taking penalties because all of that kind of factors into the value of a player as to his team. So, you know, as with any kind of one stat estimate, there is uncertainty with it. It's not, you know, a, a perfect, you know, measure of quality or even a perfect measure of performance. Uh, and and I think that there's a lot of room for debate about, you know, who, who's the best player, you know, and I certainly wouldn't say clear cut that, the best player in the league is automatically the player with the highest wins above replacement. But I do think it provides you a pretty good guidepost to, to sort out who really is providing a lot of value to their team. Yeah, no, you can see how much better the Rangers are when Fox is on the ice, even when the fourth line is out there and the first D pair comes out with them. He just makes everyone's life so much easier. And it's really striking to see because for the last several years, basically the Rangers defense was just a dumpster fire it was giving up 60-ish percent of the scoring chances at five-on-five. The first two years of David Quinn were not pretty. They did not really have an ideal defensive structure. And it's really interesting to me specifically that how dramatically different the Rangers are playing this year versus last year in terms just the style. I mean, the Rangers were one of the fastest teams last year in terms of pace, creating chances off the rush. And this year, they're one of the slowest teams in the entire league. And they dramatically altered the way they've chosen to play this year without dramatic changes to the roster. They dropped Lafreniere in there. Um, they brought in Kevin Rooney, who's a fourth-line center. Uh, they, The third defensive pair coming into the year was Jack Johnson and Brendan Smith. I mean, that's not really anything you're going to change your whole system around. And yeah. I've, been, I've been trying to piece it together and – I really do wonder how much of it is just this works better for them versus I don't know. I've been, I just really am curious as to why things change so dramatically. All they did was change an assistant coach. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that one thing 
roster wise that you could maybe point to a little bit is Tony D'Angelo not being in the lineup anymore because uh -huh. he he's a guy who had you know really high end transition numbers last year. I'm sure that probably translated in a lot of cases to you know not only a lot of rush chances for but you know he oh was certainly God. not a good not a good <laughs> defensive player either. So I, I think that you know you take Adam Fox who played ultimately third pairing minutes last year suddenly he's your number one defenseman well now you have an elite defensive defenseman you know who obviously he's also elite offensively but you know he's he's going to bring you that value defensively and now he's playing 25 minutes a night and then you take Tony D'Angelo who was an extremely up-tempo player you know for for better offensively and for worse defensively you know once you take him out of the equation that's obviously going to shake things up as well so i think that there's certain things that you can point to there but you know it wouldn't surprise me if you're also looking at uh at, at maybe some more broad level coaching stuff i know with you know with lafreniere you know he's always struck me as kind of an east-west player mm -hmm. uh and i mean with with Capacaco, you know the change that he's made in terms of how he's playing is is pretty striking uh, in terms of last year being such a kind of one and done guy uh, who really wasn't putting in the work to recover pucks or to really contribute on the forecheck and was kind of making his line mates do it for him while he waited in the slot for passes, you know, to, to this year when he's been an exceptional forechecker and really, really working hard. And, and I think reaping really great rewards in terms of underlying numbers that have unfortunately not translated into points. But, you know, when you have guys at forward who are playing that kind of grinding cycle style, you know, that's going to slow down your offense, but it also might lead to some more sustainable uh, chances and it will also help you out defensively. So I, I, I wouldn't discount that either. Yeah, no, he's made dramatic jumps and that's a good way to transition to the next thing because I, a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was like a month or two ago, I had messaged you saying, if I wanted to see if someone was actually getting better or if they were just riding a hot streak or they were playing with good line mates. I was talking about Ryan Strom because he's a really interesting player to look at from a stats level because he was basically on his last legs as an asset at the NHL level when the Rangers acquired him. I mean, the Rangers got him one for one for Ryan Spooner, who's not in the league anymore. And Strom has ridden shotgun now for two years on good lines with good line mates. And his isolated numbers away from both Kako this year and then Panarin this year and last year, they're not good. But when he's on the ice with them, he's a good complementary player. And as he looks towards next year where the Rangers are really going to have to figure out center going forward between him and Zabinijad, I've really been trying to find his place on the team. And I don't know how much stock you can put into someone who doesn't create offense on their own, who's dependent on their line mates. Yeah, he's definitely a real tricky guy to evaluate. It's something that I'm impressed with because, yeah, like you said, he's definitely not productive when he's separated from the parent. Uh, I, I will say that his his kind of isolated expected goal driving has been pretty solid uh, and, and I think has improved a lot. I think that he's he's done a decent job of generating offense without Panarin, even if it hasn't translated into goals. Uh, I'm not I'm not 100% sold on him, certainly as a first-line center. Uh, or, or as somebody that you'd want to give kind of a big contract to. But I, I, I think there is something there. He's, he's certainly a lot better than he was a couple of years ago. You're definitely right. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, I, I do feel that the Rangers probably think that they're going to have to go go big uh, and, and replace him with kind of a poor marquee center. You know, whether that's Jack Eichel, I guess we'll find out. But, uh, 
it definitely is kind of they're in a bit of a tricky situation where they have something that's that's pretty much working with with Strowman's advantage ad, but you know, I I think that there there is maybe something that leaves them wanting a little bit more, and, and they might want to solidify that with a real kind of elite number one center, uh, which you know, I I, I Strom certainly isn't, and uh, you know, I, I would probably argue that advantage ad isn't either. Yeah, definitely. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I had someone on when we were talking about this, and we were talking about who the Rangers talent-wise compare to in terms of play styles for their players, and they had compared Zibanejad to a higher-end version of what William Carlson from the Golden Knights is, and I think that's a reasonably fair comparison in terms of what they do and what they're good at, but in terms of going forward with the Rangers, I it's going to come down to if they can find a way to actually play a sustainable style while also creating offense because last year they played well above their means but they still managed to score and this year it's the polar opposite they're playing very well but they're not finishing and I've been trying to unpack it and we're going to see what happens we're going to see what happens they've got the goalie in Shesterkin that's another thing it's hard goalies very high variance it's the most roller coaster position in hockey and it's really hard to judge on giving someone a contract based on 50, 60 games, whatever, which is what the Rangers are going to have to do. I assume they'll go bridge this summer. But in terms of overarching philosophy in evaluating goaltending, how many years of above expectation play would you say it takes for you to actually believe in a goaltender? See, that's a, that's a tough question to answer because I, I don't think there are that many goalies where you could point to years <laughs> in a row of above expectation play. I think, you know, I, the goalie conversation comes up a lot because I, I think, you know, if you're somebody in my position where you're, you know, tweeting out goalie results pretty regularly, you're going to inevitably see a lot of people who are replying saying, this guy sucks. This guy's better than this guy. Thank God we didn't sign this guy. Thank God we didn't trade for this guy. This guy's amazing. You know, when at the end of the day, with, with very few exceptions, you know, you're really not setting your watch to, to any of these players really like, you know. Uh, like uh, Andre Vasilevsky having an elite season this year, uh, you know, certainly probably the favorite for the Vezina, at least top two. You know, this is kind of the first year that he has been that elite guy, you know, by these metrics uh, in his career so far, uh, which I think would surprise a lot of people. Marc-Andre Fleury also had an exceptional <laughs> year. You know, he was not good last year. Like, he lost his job for a reason. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't great the year before that either, you know. Connor Hellebuck, elite last year, obviously, uh, should have been a, a Hart no- nominee. Uh, this year, I think he, he has a good case to be the Vezina frontrunner again this year. You know, that's kind of the first time in a while that we've seen that kind of consistency uh, in terms of a guy being a real legitimate Vezina contender two years in a row. But the year before that, he sucked. You know, yeah. like, like that, that really is just how this, this works. And, you know, I, I've had, especially as kind of Hall of Fame conversations, uh, specifically surrounding Flurry, I think, have come up. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, historical context and Vezinas and, and whether or not those were fully accurate. But I, I think a big part of, of what's happened is that, you know, goaltending has become so good that the variation between them is so small, where, you know, if you took, you know, maybe in the 1990s or the 1980s, you know, the best goalies really were kind of a cut above, consistently a cut above. And you can kind of set your watch to this guy is going to be a top five goalie in the league every year because the spread was so far. But now every goalie is so good that the difference between the best goalie in the league, you know, 
one year to another is going to be pretty wild because it's, it's all just kind of a matter of, of, of a, a couple, you know, a couple of bad goals, a couple of bad games, and suddenly you're in a really sorry spot. So, you know, people, like I saw somebody today ask me uh, whether I thought that goaltending was kind of the next market inefficiency. Mm-hmm. But the problem with it is that there is no way, like there's no resolving <laughs> that market inefficiency yeah. because nobody knows how to evaluate goalies properly. Whether you're, you know, me looking at the stats and there's no consistency between them, or you're a guy who's, you know, a technical goalie expert who's talking about a player's, you know, their reverse VH or any of that kind of fancy goalie jargon. And you're talking of a guy who can't keep a puck out of a net because his technique is so good. You know, I, it really is just, it's such a random position that I, I have a really tough time at any point having that much confidence in good results or, or even bad results for that matter. That's a beautiful way to transition to the th- next thing I wanted to touch on in terms of how you build a team in today's day and age. I, I feel like we're reaching a point in terms of roster composition where every team is starting to resemble each other in terms of how their money is distributed. I don't feel like you can have one of the goalies who's making more than eight, nine million a year and just have a good team around them because, like you said, goaltending is such a high variance thing. And those contracts just don't age well for the most part. It's like paying a running back in football. You get, finally get a guy to UFA, and then you give him that big money. I mean, the obvious one is Bobrovsky, but Carey Price has not played well since he signed that big contract. Can you afford to pay a goalie a ton of money? Uh, it's definitely not an ideal thing to do. I mean, you know, Vasilevsky, I think, is a deal that – I wasn't very hot on for the past two years. And then, you know, this year he's living up to it a bit, but for all we know next year, he's going to be crummy and we're going to be back at square one. If you can avoid paying the goalie, I would definitely avoid paying the goalie, especially if they're kind of USAH, you know, if the Rangers wanted to sign Shesterkin and they could get him for like, you know, five and a half or 6 million or something like that, then, you know, it wouldn't really be the end of the world, but the, the big money goalie contracts, because, you know, once they're there, like they're not movable yeah. because once, because like goaltending is evaluated so much on history and there's so much of kind of a reputational aspect for it that as soon as that reputation starts to sour, you know, Sergei Borowski is a guy that the Panthers felt the need to pay that money to in free agency. And now they couldn't find a taker for that contract if they tried, you know, they, they might not even be able to get a taker if they've retained a good amount of money, you know, and, and that's only kind of a span of one year. So in terms of team construction, the less you can spend on goaltending, the better. Uh, You know, you you hear a lot of people talk about how important goaltending is, especially kind of the Leafs right now, because all this course inevitably revolves around the Leafs. Uh, (laughs) They are in a position right now where they can't get it safe, where Campbell had that miraculous run early on, and then he's predictably cooled off because goaltending is goaltending. And they have, you know, they had Riddick in there last night. He was terrible. They've had Anderson. He's really struggled, especially lately and especially uh, on special teams. You know, and now they're finding themselves in a position where they're saying, well, who is going to stop the puck? And, you know, there's there's quotes going around where people are saying, you know, it doesn't matter how good the skaters are on the ice. You know, none of that matters if you don't have a goalie. But, you know, the, the fundamental team building problem is that there's basically no such thing as finding a goalie. Unless <laughs> yeah. you have maybe, you know, like, I mean, I mean, John Gibson is a perfect example. John Gibson was like the foolproof goalie, you know, who was on like the brilliant contract and was the only thing keeping the, the Ducks afloat. And he hasn't been good for the past two years. 
you know, Hellebuck, you know, he's kind of the clear number one goalie in the league right now, but, you know, come back next year and, and, and who knows, you know, he might be a guy that we're talking about as being a, a disappointment or, or costing the Jets games and stuff like that. You really can't set your watch to it at all. And it, it puts you in a real bad position once you have money locked into it, because, you know, like, like the Panthers are finding right now with Bobrovsky, you know, if they didn't have Bobrovsky, they would be in a really good position to give Chris Drieger a, a small kind of affordable contract and then run Spencer Knight. But they have to basically orient all of their team building plans for the next five or six years around the albatross of having Bobrovsky. So, yeah, I, if I was put in charge of an NHL team, I would be doing everything in my power to avoid paying a goalie a lot of money. Uh, one thing I think that that you know, not to not to ramble on this point, but the something that I find interesting and maybe a bit of a paradox or a bit of a, a source of tension is the fact that from from all accounts and from everything that I've heard, players really do value having like a consistent starting goalie. Mm-hmm. Like they want to have like a franchise goalie. Uh, you know, people who play, who I've talked to or who have coached have, have really emphasized that to me. And there is kind of a tension there where having like the big money franchise goalie in a lot of cases really is not an ideal situation in, in the current day, but uh, you know, unfortunately maybe that's how it plays in the locker room. And and if you're in the locker room, you know, maybe they don't feel too good about paying two league minimum guys every summer and just trotting them out there and hoping (laughs) that things work out that way. But yeah, I, I I don't know. Goaltending is like the thing that, that breaks my brain and and that I'm, it's, it's essentially, it's the thing that ruins hockey from a, analytical perspective and it keeps things fresh and it keeps things interesting so i don't mind that but uh when it comes to trying to analyze it you know i literally wrote an article last summer called you know why goaltending is basically random and will always make you look stupid and since i wrote it i think i have been made to look stupid by goaltending at least a dozen more times so (laughs) i should probably stop trying to talk about it authoritatively but we're all using the same information here. I mean, we're all watching the games and we're all trying to judge that. I asked this, that question specifically first because the Rangers tried to win a cup with their most expensive player being a goalie. And for a number of years, they got really close. But you can't win every hockey game one nothing, 2-1 to one in the playoffs. Even as good as Lundqvist was in elimination games, his numbers were insane. His all-time numbers, his saves, his goals above replacement save insane numbers from Lundqvist and you know I always I felt confident because they had him but I always was left wanting that one guy who could score goals and you're seeing a bunch of different approaches to this same problem how are you going to distribute money throughout your roster and try to win a Stanley Cup Montreal threw a bunch of money at B plus and B minus guys and they're trying to have four solid line three defensive pairs and the most expensive goalie in the league the Leafs, they went really top heavy. They have two number one centers who make more than 10 million. They got Marner. They've got Morgan Riley who makes eh, like six ish million. They've got William Nylander, seven and a half. Is there an ideal way you want to distribute your money between forwards, defensemen and goalies? Like if you had a magical pie chart in your head, what you would want to do, or would it depend on your situation? Because when you get guys in on their ELC and balancing out money to stagger it out over a number of years. Yeah. I, 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 I would say that I, I don't know if we have enough proof of concept yet with, with what the Leafs have done. And, and, you know, I guess what the Habs have done, I think has been a decent indication that, you know, 
at least you need to have a team that can generate on special teams if you're going to have the plus and B minus players. But yeah, I, I mean, the problem for the Leafs, I don't think is is the like the fundamental way that they've built their team. You know, I, I think that there is something to the idea of, of you have your star players and they're the ones who make the money and then you build around them. I mean, you know, the Penguins in the, you know, the the back-to-back cups era were a, a perfect example of that, where they had yeah. Crosby, Malkin, and Latang were like the three big guys. You know, they had Flurry who wasn't signed to very much money and, and that flexibility allowed them to not feel too bad about running Matt Murray because they weren't, you know, disrupting a $10 million asset. Uh, and then they were able to, because of that flexibility, surround them with guys who were making, you know, decent money. Like they were able to go out and acquire Phil Castle. They were able to go out and acquire uh, Carl Hagelin, who had made four million bucks. Uh, you know, Trevor Daly, who was making three and a half million bucks. Like you know, th- these aren't guys who are making nothing. They weren't, you know, doing the least thing and, and signing veterans to league minimum. Uh, I guess with the exception of Matt Cullen, who was a veteran who signed for league minimum. So scratch that one out. But you know, they, they gave themselves the flexibility to acquire uh, these guys without having the need to sign them long-term or acquire them in free agency. You know, if I was in charge of an NHL team, I would not be particularly active in free agency. I, I think that trading is really the way to go, uh, even if that does put you in a situation where you're going to frequently lose trades, you know. But I, I think that there's a good sense in principle for having your best players, you know, it's fine to have them make a lot of money. I don't think you need to run four well-paid lines. And I think that the, the attempt to do that is going to backfire on you a lot more than it, than it does well, because, you know, the fact of the matter is that, is that you can get good players for cheap. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it the way that the Leafs have done it, where they, you know, they, they, send everybody a picture of the CN tower and everybody magically signs for $700,000. But, you know, like, like there are players that you can find. I think the Penguins bottom six this season is a good example where they made a lot of kind of safe down the middle league minimum acquisitions. You know, they brought in like, you know, Evan Rodriguez and Colton Sevier and, and all these guys who I don't think had too much interest around the league and they're all fine. They're all doing okay. As long as you have, you know, a strong system and good coaching and you can surround them with good players. You know, you really don't have to pay a lot of money to the players at the bottom of your lineup. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that the, the Penguins in those back-to-back years are as good a model as I would pivot to. Uh, you know, but the given, of course, is that you have to have, you know, the Crosby and the Walking in place. Uh, you know, and, and I think you could, you know, maybe in terms of the Rangers, I, I would have no issue at all with, you know, having, you know, Adam Fox be an eight and a half million dollar player, you know, or, or having Panarin at the money that he is, you know, Truba, maybe I'm not so psyched about, but I, I think you can make it work as long as you have a team that can identify the right depth players as opposed to overpaying the long ones. Yeah, because we see it every single year in free agency. There's a third line center, a third line wing who's getting four or five million dollars and they're just not worth that money that's not disrespectful to them that's not an assault and and, you know they're just you're going to pay more for guys getting to free agency because that's their one chance to make some good money after being a restricted free agent or with the same organization for x number of years and you're always going to have to pay at least a million million and a half more 
or you end up doing what the Canucks did and just totally pricing yourself out of any real roster flexibility because you have to dole out all that money in free agency for whatever reason. The last thing in this segment, the portion about team building I wanted to touch on was, do we have a good way of understanding the impacts of coaching yet? I know when we talked in the fall, we briefly touched on it. I know I've looked at Micah's model a little bit, but in terms of impacts, do we have any idea how good at what coaches are at at this point? Probably not. <laughs> uh, I, I think that it really is one of those things where you kind of have to play things a little bit by ear. Like, like for example, like if we're talking about the, you know, let's say the coach of the year this year, I think that Joel Quenville is a pretty good choice because if you look at the way that that team was playing before he arrived and even how they were playing last year, uh, compared to this year with pretty similar rosters, uh, it, it's a hugely marked difference. I, I think when we talk about coaching, as long as what you're doing is taking goaltending and shooting out of the out of the, the equation, uh, which is a step that is very infrequently taken by people who talk about coaches, mm-hmm. uh, I think that you're you're probably going to be in a good position. Like for example, you know, let's if you talked about the the Blue Jackets last year. You know, I, I thought that John Tortorella did a great job last year because the Blue Jackets were one of the best defensive teams in the league. Uh, and, and they essentially they took the situation that they were in, which was all of their good offensive players left and they lost uh, their starting goalie. And they decided to uh, opt for a very, very low event kind of defensive oriented style of game. And Tortorella was able to get buy-in from his team and it worked and they made the playoffs and they ended up, you know, doing a little bit, uh, you know, taking out the Leafs. You know, I think that that was, that that was great. I think you can say the same thing about the, the Islanders, especially this year where, you know, you have a roster, which on its face is relatively unremarkable uh, and they've been performing as one of the best teams in the league, whether you're looking at, at the wins column or whether you're looking at their underlying results. So, you know, the, the real measure of coaching, I don't know if we're at a point where you would really be able to suss it out with a model with any degree of confidence at all. But I think that in terms of just analyzing things intuitively, I think you can kind of draw things out and, and you can point to specific things, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the Penguins being so successful when players are injured. I think that you can point in a lot of cases to, you know, Mike Sullivan being able to motivate his team, being able to, you know, mold how that bottom six plays to make it effective and, and make people able to play maybe above their means, you know, making strong player deployments, putting guys in positions to succeed. There's a lot of stuff you can point to. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily things that are going to be immediately apparent to you just from looking at the outputs of the model. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, I always go back and forth on this. I've been really dealing with it a lot this year because I've been trying to suss out if David Quinn is actually a good coach or not. And I don't think so. Just purely from a morale standpoint, I feel like the team kind of, they get way too high or way too low where they kind of have these duds like they did last night against the Islanders. But at the same time, if they're feeling themselves, they can crank out nine goals on a Flyers team that quit on them on the ice. So it's interesting. Like coaching is one of those things that's really hard to quantify. It's kind of, I hate to say the word eye test, but it is an eye test kind of thing. Does the way the team's playing make sense? Are they using players in a way that makes sense? Are people being given opportunities to succeed? Transitioning to the last thing I wanted to touch on, 
just kind of a rapid fire touching on a bunch of different things. So for all intents and purposes, most people, the gambling markets for futures, they have the top five, six in the league sussed out right now as Colorado, Tampa, Carolina, Vegas, the Islanders, the Leafs. Is there anyone not in that upper echelon you feel like could potentially get there? I really want to say the Penguins. Okay. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm quite confident enough to to say at that point, especially after their performance last night. <laughs> I would I, I would keep an eye out on the Penguins, and I'm not just saying that as a homer. Uh, I so uh, on top of the fact that they've been they've been winning a lot lately, they've been doing very well with Malkin and Kapanen uh, out of the lineup, which I think once again speaks to uh, to Sullivan's strength as a coach. I think they're getting better results from from Marino and Latang than they were at the beginning of the season. Uh, and I, I think uh, their their underlying results, as measured by the public models, have not been very good. Uh, or they, I mean, they've been fine, but they haven't been anywhere near that top level. Uh, I, I recently had the chance, like I mentioned, with the Rangers to to see some of the kind of pr- proprietary data. And the Penguins are a team that I think the public models are sleeping on. Based on that, uh, I think that they are generating better chances. Uh, they're tighter defensively. They're limiting passes through the slot. They're generating rush chances and things like that 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 the public models aren't able to pick up on. So I, I see them as kind of a team that a lot of people are kind of off on at this point. You know, they're they're not flashy. They've obviously been terrible in the in the playoffs for the past couple of years. But I would definitely keep my eye on them as as maybe a team that could find themselves at the top of the division, uh, kind of unexpectedly. Uh, another one there would be the Bruins. Okay. Uh, I, and I think that that's probably a bit of a sexy pick at this point, just because of the acquisitions they've made. You know, Taylor Hall obviously being a big one, but I, I think that they're they're a team that really has just not been able to do anything offensively outside of that top line all year. Uh, the stats bear that out. You know, the many Bruins fans you might mention have borne that mm-hmm. out. Uh, but adding Taylor Hall, I really think has kind of jolted some life into that you know, into that second line and, and, and hopefully, you know, push some pieces down the lineup that can start a bit of a chain reaction going. But I, I think, you know, they have good pieces there. Like like Craig Smith is a great player, one that I've been really high on for a long time. And and he was not producing at the level you would want, in part because the chances just weren't coming. You know, David Krejci, I think, is, is pretty decently past his prime. And, and he wasn't doing it as an offensive catalyst. Uh, but now you have, you know, Taylor Hall in the lineup. Obviously, I, you know, I think he's one of the best playmaking wingers in the NHL. You know, kind of maybe just a tier below uh, Panarin in that category. And, uh, you know, on defense, I, I think Charlie McAvoy has a, a decent case to be the best defenseman in the NHL. I think Adam Fox would probably be his competition in that category. Uh, and, you know, Mike Riley, really smart acquisition. Matt Grelichick, I'm I, I'm a big fan of his as well. And and Duke Rask, I think, has been pretty underrated at this point for for a lot of things that are kind of outside of his control. So I, I like the Bruins quite a bit. Do I know that I wasn't so rapid fire. I'll definitely I'll, I'll limit <laughs> no. the word count of my answers a little bit. Oh, it's fine because I'm going to ask a follow up question to that. Do you think the fact that either of those teams, if they were to get to what isn't really the conference finals because there aren't conferences this year, but do you think the fact that the path to the Final Four goes through the other team, the goes through Boston, the Islanders, Washington, or Pittsburgh, do you think that 
that might be kind of a, by the time you get to that final four, your team is kind of shot just from the kind of series you had to get through. Yeah, that, that's, that's going to be a heavy division for sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm not completely sold on the Capitals, uh, to be quite honest with you. Okay. I think that they, they are really playing above their, above their means right now in terms of scoring. You know, and, and, and some of that does come from the way that they're generating offense. You know, they're scoring more off the rush and, and things like that. But, you know, I really do think that there is a bit of a bubble in terms of the bucks that they're putting into the net. Mm-hmm. You know, I, did, I didn't like them dropping Verona, even if I'm yeah. a fan of, uh, of Anthony Mantha. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe the Capitals really are, you know, legitimately, you know, they have like the 10 best snipers in the league and, and they'll make you look silly. But, you know, I, I think the Capitals strike me as a bit of a paper tiger. Um, the Islanders are really the team that, that would kind of scare me just because like they have been playing this season like they did in the playoffs last year. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, the, the playoffs last year were really the, you know, all the Islanders fans in, in the mention saying, hey, hey, you know, oh, like this is the PDO team, right? Well, we're getting to the conference finals. And their underlying results were incredible, but obviously they weren't too interested in hearing that because it it softened the blow of, of them owning us. Uh, but this year has been the same. They've been, from an underlying numbers perspective, one of the best teams in the league. Uh, so if they can couple the things that they were doing to outperform those underlying numbers before with the fact that they're a top five team in terms of scoring chances, you know, that's, that's a really dangerous thing and, and something that I would not be too eager to see the Penguins come up against in the playoffs, especially without home ice advantage. Yeah, I'm very much looking to see how the East shakes out. I, I can't believe the Flyers just kind of died the way they did, but then again, I remembered they have Elaine Vigneau as their coach, and I remembered watching the exact same thing happen like three years ago, so I'm not going to dwell on the Flyers. We, we got our shot in on them. Who's the player you're most interested to see how they perform down the stretch in this last three weeks here? Ooh. That is a good question. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I want to see uh, Connor McDavid score 100 points. I think that would yes. be really uh, I think that anybody who's not cheering for players to score as many points as possible, I'm, I'm inherently suspicious of. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of kind of non-Homer answers here. Uh, I, I think that the, the Norris race is so close right now that I would really like to see somebody come out a little bit more clearly ahead. You know, I, I mean, for a lot of people, the answer is just Hedman, uh, whereas he isn't really even on my radar right now, which, you know, people might say is just contrarianism. But, you know, I, I, I really like Adam Fox. Uh, you know, that, that Islanders duo of Pelic and Bullock has, has been amazing. Uh, Charlie McAvoy also definitely in the conversation. Um, yeah, I, I think I just I want to see more of the Avalanche. You know, I, I really would like for them to make a deep run this year. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I would love to see them in, in the cup final, for example, they're a team I've always had a soft spot for. And I think that they have, they've done things the right way, yeah. you know, in so many different facets that it would be, it would be nice to see them not get, you know, PDO'd by the, you know, by the, uh, whoever it is, the St. Louis blues in the first round, something like that. So, so we'll see. Yeah, I mean, we're not that far removed from Joe Sackick, the general manager, being a running joke on Twitter. That was like three years ago where he was considered one of the worst general managers in the league, and they turned it around. They hired some new people. They approached things a little bit differently. They got a better coach in there, and they started complimenting their good players. 
I mean, when you have Nathan McKinnon on the contract he's on and you can't build a good team around that, that, that was bad. That was just outwardly bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm all on board the avalanche, uh, the avalanche hype train in, in terms of wanting to see it succeed. And in part because I'm such a Devon Taves fan. I'm so, although I'm always biased in favor of players who I say are good and then they turn out to be. <laughs> You know, Adam Fox is a similar thing where, you know, I don't think there's any real reason for me to have that much of an affinity for Adam Fox in particular. But because I had him for the Calder last year and everybody raked me over the coals for it, you know, now that everyone's saying he's like a, a top defenseman in the league now that he's playing 25 minutes a night, I do feel a little bit provincial about him. And I think Devontae's is the same situation. So uh, I, I would like to see Devontae's continue to, uh, to thrive. And it would be very funny to see him get Norris votes. Uh, just so I could shove that in the face of all the Islanders fans who made fun of me last summer. You think Winnipeg can beat Toronto in a playoff series? Uh, I don't think anybody can beat anybody in a playoff series at the end of the day. I I certainly would not put money on them. But, <laughs> you know, they they play just such a such a zero calorie style. Yeah. Uh, I I think they're they're a little better than the public models show but not by that much and they're still not that good like they 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 rely so heavily on their scoring forwards you know not only in terms of getting goals kind of above expected based on the chances they're able to generate but you know that that blue line just doesn't do anything yeah. like they and, and it's not just that they're they're not talented it's that the system is specifically set up to not let them do anything and i think that makes life so much harder for their forwards you know, especially defensively, I think that you could probably tie that in with a lot of the kind of downward spirals that their players have seen in the defensive zone. Um, but, you know, again, all it takes is a hot goalie. The Leafs learned that last year, and, and it wasn't even a good hot goalie. It was yeah. Eunice Corpusala, who's who has been one of the worst goalies in the league in his career and, and who has been one of the worst goalies in the league this year, uh, who just had a really hot two weeks, and, and that was the end of that. So, you know, the Jets certainly can beat the Leafs. It would be kind of funny if they beat the Leafs. Uh, I, I wouldn't bet on it, is, is, is I guess my answer to that. What team just needs a few more bounces to go their way come playoff time? Last year, I was banging the drum that I thought Carolina could be a team to make a really deep run, and then everyone got hurt. So that's not really the most ideal answer to use as a frame of reference here, but what team do you think needs a bounce or two and they could play a little bit above their weight class and really make a deep run? So that doesn't include Colorado because uh, they are the best team right now. Yeah, that, that is, that is a tricky question. I, I guess Boston would, would be one that I would point to just because I think that rumors of their demise have definitely been exaggerated. Uh, I think Dallas is, is probably a good call as well. Uh, you know, they are, I think, starting to really sneak into that playoff mix in the, in the West, I think, or in the, the Central Division, sorry. Uh, I think that they're actually kind of properly in that fourth seed by points percentage at this point. So, so they're definitely an interesting one. I, I think something that is making me hesitate, because the, the obvious answers for this would be the Hurricanes and the Golden Knights. Uh, in, in terms of especially just the bounces thing, because they're two teams that have had very high expected goals for percentages and, and underperformed them and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, you could say the same thing about the Canadians. Um, I will say it was kind of gratifying in a way, uh, looking at this kind of private data to see that 
both the Golden Knights and the Hurricanes, uh, both by the sports logic model, which which is a, a stronger model because it has access to more information uh, baked into it, uh, thinks that the Golden Knights and the Hurricanes are both overrated by the public expected goal models, which doesn't terribly surprise me considering how consistently they've underperformed them. But that does give me a little bit more hesitation in terms of saying that those teams are kind of the ones that if, if they just get a couple bounces to go their way. I am intrigued by the Hurricanes, though, just because they do have three guys who theoretically could steal them a playoff series if they get hot. You know, they have three NHL-capable guys. James Reimer's not doing too well. You know, Peter Mrazek hasn't played very much, but he did quite well when he was playing. And then Nadjelkovic has been kind of that perfect, you know, high pedigree, hot goalie to kind of come out of nowhere. So it would be certainly interesting to, to see if, if things went that way. But I, I guess one that I forgot about would be Florida. Yeah. Uh, having having Chris Drieger, you know, in the wings, you know, the possibility of if they were able to make kind of the heart-wrenching decision to to get rid of uh, – of Sergei Bobrovsky or, or Benchim. And I'm not sure what Ekblad's timeline is in terms of the playoffs. He might be out for that, but you know, that, that could be a fun one as well. So there are definitely some teams that could sneak in, you know, any team can always has a chance with a hot goalie, but uh, those are the ones that I would point to first. Okay. Two more questions and I will get you out of here. Number one, before the Stanley cup final, what would be the most fun matchup we could have from just the spectator standpoint? So, so not the Stanley Cup final. Yes, uh, Toronto Montreal. I'm, I'm <laughs> so hard for that. I remember in 2013, that was the only other time that it has been even a possibility. And I remember checking, you know, whatever the website was, uh, sports club bets or whatever it was that had the, uh, the 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 playoff chances and the matchup chances back in those days, and uh, just constantly checking to see what the odds were of the Leafs and Habs meeting, and eventually. It was uh, Leafs-Bruins, obviously, uh, that ended up being the matchup. But I, I have been dying for Leafs-Habs forever. I don't think it's happened since, like, the 1980s or 1970s or something like that. So it would be pretty incredible to see that. Uh, Leafs-Oilers would also be would also be fun. I would settle for Leafs-Oilers uh, just to get the, the Matthews, versus, uh, Matthews versus McDavid and then also to have the two most – outspoken and arguably annoying fan bases on Twitter be at each other's throats for uh, for two weeks. So I wouldn't mind that either. You're talking more so from just the entertainment, not even from the hockey. Like I was thinking like maybe we get like Colorado Vegas in the second round, but then ba- Colorado kind of runs them out of the rink probably. I was thinking more along the lines of just purely entertainment. From oh, the game. Like, I mean, like, like stylistic. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, I probably should have specified that before I let you go on for a minute there. Go if you don't mind. Yeah. Stylistically, yeah. that would be the most fun. Huh. That is, that is, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I could definitely see Edmonton, Winnipeg being a lot of fun if, if that ends up ultimately being the kind of the second versus third matchup there, because those are two teams that have big defensive flaws, which is, I think, a good equation for some wide open, ridiculous hockey. Yeah. Um, and, and it would be it would definitely be nice to see McDavid play against a defensively incompetent team. Uh it was it was fun when they played against the Blackhawks last year, even though they ultimately ended up getting uh, getting beat in that series. Um, and and you know I think there's a lot of potential for 
you know, good Hellebuck narratives and things like that. But I, I think that, that they both play a, a wide open enough style that at least when their stars are on the ice, it would be fun. You could definitely make the case, though, that when their stars aren't on the ice, it might be an unwatchable drag. But I think it would be worth it for for those, you know, the half the game. Oh, God, yes. I The nuclear takes we would get from either – the nuclear takes we would get from a Toronto Montreal series, because no matter what, one of those teams would immediately be in the, well, we got to trade our entire core away now because we didn't win this game. So who are the Leafs going to trade William Nylander for? Maybe they should trade him for a defenseman. That kind of thing. That kind of thing is due. We're, we're getting to the point in the year where the Toronto centric media starts to panic. We're, we're getting there. They just, they need to play in a playoff series and have something go wrong or get an unfortunate bounce, which has happened a lot to them where, it was just one save away from winning a game that ultimately would have been a difference in winning the series. Last question, and I will get you out of here. What Stanley Cup matchup would you like to see? So are we taking the Pittsburgh Penguins off the table? For yeah. Yes, no homerism, please. No Colorado yeah. versus Pittsburgh Cup final. Okay, because that, that would definitely be my, be my pick. And I would <laughs> even make some kind of pseudo, like, oh, Crosby versus McKinnon uh, argument for it. But all right. Uh, Colorado versus Tampa Bay. I would oh, just, yes. I just the fact that like those are the two best teams in the league, I think, and uh, arguably kind of the two best teams of like this, you know, this kind of era for the time being. And you know, they might continue to be for the next couple of years. But I would just love to see those two teams, you know, no injuries, like just fully stocked, just you know, battle it out over seven games. I, I think that settling beside that, I, I think Colorado, uh, Toronto would also be a lot of fun uh just just in terms of like the play styles i I think would be you know like you said i I think two pretty compatible teams and and two kind of relatively similar teams in terms of the way that they play uh so i I could see a lot of enjoyment there plus you'd get you know all the storylines around all the all the old veterans without a cup who are on the the leafs you know with thornton and simmons and felino and and spedza and all that kind of stuff going on so there there would be fun stuff for that too but yeah, I, I think the main thing is that I'd like to see Colorado. Uh, Vegas, I, I don't love the way Vegas plays. I don't think it's that fun to watch. And I think there's a there's a reason that they keep kind of getting knocked out, uh, you know, like they did last year and, and the year before. Um, you know, I, I think that it would, it would definitely be nice to see a Canadian team make it just because there's just such a hubbub whenever that happens. And I think it would kind of inject some much-needed life into – the playoffs that maybe wasn't necessarily there last year, you know, where I think a lot of people's attention kind of drifted away. So anything that, that provides high quality hockey and that gets a lot of people really, really upset is the, uh, the, the position that I'm willing to stake out. That would be a lot of fun. Colorado Tampa would be very fun. I know last year I really wanted to see Colorado and Vegas in the conference final, but the Canucks had to go and win. And I mean, excuse me, the stars had to go and win, but yeah, Hockey, like we've said more than once in the hour or so we've been talking, yeah, very, very high variance. And a hot goalie can screw up anyone's plans. Uh, we're two years removed from Columbus beating Tampa in a sweep in the first round. Three years removed, excuse me. Anything yeah. can happen when it comes to the hockey playoffs. You got anything to plug, Jack? Are you working on anything the people should know about? Yeah, uh, yeah I'm just going to reiterate i guess what you said off the top uh you can find my writing at ep ringside uh 
at the the kind of hockey analysis section of Elite Prospects. Uh, I'm I just finished right before recording this an, an article on uh, Quinn Hughes, who who I think his his season has kind of gone the opposite direction of of Adam Fox in terms of the development of his play at five on five. So a, a, a lot to look into there. Uh, you can also find uh, all of my other writing on my Substack, uh, which is which is free, no subscription necessary for that. Jfresh.substack.com, and then uh, my Patreon, like you said, all of the kind of stats visualizations that I post a lot on Twitter and and that often people share while yelling at each other. Uh, <laughs> those, those can be found. You subscribe for five dollars a month, and you get access to over a dozen. Uh, stat visualizations from from this NHL season and past ones as well, and uh, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Find me on Twitter at jfreshhockey. Thank you so much for coming on. I love, I really do, genuinely love your stuff. It's very, very informative, and it's so much more helpful than a lot of the casual stuff I read because we've all of these micro stats go into painting a bigger picture all of the individual things when you want to talk about transition play, you talk about chance creation, chance depression, all of this goes into making the profile of a picture and the cards, especially that you've designed on your patron are very helpful to get a snapshot view of things for when I'm writing things, when I'm making videos, when I'm doing the podcast. So from one content creator to another, appreciate your work, Jack. Thank you for stopping by. I will see you guys tomorrow. We are going to be talking Major League Baseball three weeks in. I will see you guys then.